start, I wanted to introduce you uh, to a new friend of mine. This is Emily. She's a, she's a fun little character, and um, we worked on this talk together. And uh, so if there's uh, some bits that you know, don't make too much sense, I'm happy if we all agree that she's got a large part um, to play with that. Um, but while I was on paternity leave, um, I started watching the new Lord of the Rings show, The Rings of Power. A few, few yeses, and uh, apparently the most, most viewers ever for a prime uh, video premiere, and it's set to be the most expensive television series ever made. It's been fun chatting in the office with a few people, kind of working out theories and trying to work out kind of who becomes who, the who's who's of the eventual characters in the films. Tom James knows quite a lot about it, if you want to get into that after the service. Uh, but it's bringing together, really, all these themes and threads over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of Tolkien's amazing writing and worlds that he created. And it's been helpful discussing it for me because it makes much more of the storyline when you basically understand what's happening or basically when you know who becomes Gandalf and it's this you know the, the more you understand the more impacting the story is and that's because context is key to understanding it helps bring the story the eventual story to life and it's the same when we approach a book like John in this series Wild Wonder Reflections on John chapter 6 it's the same when we look at a passage like this because context is key remember we've said before that a text without a context is just just a pretext. In other words, we can start to just attach whatever we want onto it, create our own meaning. And to remind ourselves, really, I thought it'd be helpful to start just to get into some of that context again, into the book of John, particularly chapter six, to help locate us in John's gospel and the series we're in uh, that John started last week. It's slightly confusing that John started the series in John. I'm Johnny. We'll kind of go with it. Um, I'll try and differentiate when it's the gospel of John and John Finch, but we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get there together. So John as a whole, not John Finch, John the Gospel, very helpfully, we get the purpose basically. He makes it really plain what the purpose of his writing is. Later on in chapter 20, verse 31, he writes this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name really helpful that he basically says like this is my reason for writing that you might believe in Jesus and so the gospel of John really is this kind of theological retelling of what had been witnessed of what he and his friends had seen it's providing a window into who Jesus is what his mission is and then therefore what the implications are in light of that for his followers so it's this theological retelling of what they'd seen and there's some really interesting aspects particular to the Gospel of John. I think it's helpful to become, as I say, with the context, some of these themes and threads, a bit like the different characters in Lord of the Rings, to be aware of some of these things when we approach this chapter six. And there's one thing, really, that it all kind of leads towards, and that's this idea that identity precedes action. Identity precedes action. In other words, who we are before what we do. And we see this in what are known as the seven I am statements. Throughout the Gospel of John, there's these seven I am statements that he makes. And we're going to be in and amongst the I am the bread of life. Emily, particularly next week, is going to be looking at that. But that's what John uh, 6 is all about. Um, but there's the other I am, I am the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the resurrection, the life, I'm the good shepherd, the true vine, the way, the truth and the life. Some of these you might have heard. But through each of these seven I am statements, Jesus is saying like, 
this is what God is like. He's using everyday analogies, everyday things that people would understand to say this is what God is like. And then the way that John particularly connects this in his writing, there's also seven signs or seven kind of key miracles that go alongside these seven I am phrases. And with these seven signs, this is what he's saying really is identity. This is what that identity looks like in action. So if the I am statements are like, this is what God is like, then the seven signs is kind of saying, this is what that's like when it's put into action, when it's lived out. Because everything that God does is an overflow of who he is. And that action shapes who we are, which then shapes what we do, right? So God's being affects God's doing, which then in turn affects who we are, which then affects what we do. Does that make sense? So here we are in John 6. We've got this theme of I am the bread of life. Remember, we've just had the feeding of the 5,000 from last week that John looked at. Already you see the kind of parallels between the bread of life and that. And as John shared last week, that really is all about kind of Jesus showing who God is, but through the power. It's the power of God on display. And there was the kind of callback to the Exodus narrative with the manna bread that was provided. Um, So power of God, which was a power that was in abundance, as John shared. And then finally he said that, that we can be a host of that power. The disciples were involved in that process. And really all of this leads to this idea that we're all invited into this adventure of faith, to live out this wild wonder of faith. So that's where we've got to when we're approaching John 6, from verse 16 we're gonna be today. So um, we're gonna read the passage now and then I'm gonna continue. Hopefully that's helpful just to almost like tee up where we are, what we're doing. And I'm gonna invite Lily to come and read to us. Why don't we give a big round of applause for Lily as she reads. Uh, Yeah, so we're reading John 6, 16 to 29. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "'It is I, don't be afraid.'" Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realised that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Is that me still? (laughs) Sorry, there's a gap there. Yeah, I can just do the whole thing. (laughs) We've just just had, the night is drawing in. Oh, sorry, that was it. Round of applause for Lily, this is the word of the Lord. Amazing. Thank you so much, Lily. 
So yeah, that's the next part of this story, really. We've had the feeding of the 5,000, then nights come, and then uh, the disciples get on this boat and go across. And while the disciples have got um, on the boat, Jesus has gone away to pray by himself to take some time. And I'm going to look at just this passage with three key points, really. And the way I frame this, as I was thinking about it, is also really the answer that I would give. Someone would say, like, what difference does being a Christian make to your life? I think I would frame it like this, and it gives a peace a perspective and a purpose. A peace, a perspective and a purpose. So we're just going to kind of whiz through these three points from this moment, from this interaction that Lily's just read for us. So firstly then, a peace. And we saw in verse 18, uh, a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. So they're kind of rowing across. So these would have been a few of them fishermen really knew what they were doing. But these choppy waters, strong winds come. And they see Jesus coming, as we read, but they don't recognise it's him. It says that they were frightened. And the word uh, used here is actually the word that we get phobia from in our language, but really it means to, to, to be afraid, to flee, even to revere. And sometimes I think this is the point here really is when we're full of fear, we just don't recognise that Jesus is with us. When we're consumed with fear, we can miss that Jesus is with us or miss what Jesus is doing. But what we see here, and I think this is an amazing detail, is when the waters grew rough, when we're in need, Jesus moves towards us. In the passage, it's actually that Jesus is coming towards them in the boat, even in miraculous ways. He's walking on the water. So Jesus comes towards us when we're in the storm. And now remember John sharing last week, and as I kind of hinted at, um, there's these references with the feeding of the 5,000 to the Exodus story from the Old Testament uh, with Moses. And the reference was that God provided this manna, bread from heaven each day that would sustain their needs, creating something out of nothing to provide for a people in need. And it's happening here again, straight off the bat. This really is a callback to the Exodus narrative as well with the parting of the Red Sea, right? that someone could move through water. There's a reference of that dividing of the sea in the Exodus, which really that whole story is about God's saving work, about God doing for his people which they couldn't do for themselves. So once again, straight away in this reading, we have Jesus symbolically reenacting a story of salvation, a story of freedom in his actions, in the way that he's operating but they don't recognise that at first. They don't even recognise it's Jesus in their fear. In verse 20, then he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. It is I. And Matthew and Mark's account uses this phrase, take courage. Take courage. And then as the story moves on um, into verse 21, we see that they're willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The meaning for this phrase, they're willing to take him into the boat, I think is a really rich one. It includes, uh, it's not just kind of, um, you know, they're happy to bring him in, but it's, it's to receive something that is given. Even more than receiving it, it's to make that thing one's own. So that language is like to receive that gift, but not only that, but to make it their own, to really own it. So more than it's just like, oh, it's like, oh, Jesus, it's you. Sorry, man, didn't realise it was you. Come on in, come on in, let me get you a towel. It's a lot more than that. It's, it's receiving the breakthrough moment. It's receiving the peace, peace I've given to you, which we were just singing before. It's receiving that as our own. It's receiving um, that, that courage, the take courage that Jesus was saying. And then there's this breakthrough moment and they reach the destination where they wanted to go. 
You see, they had been struggling. They'd been rowing in their own strength against the choppy waters and the windy thing. They weren't really getting anywhere. I imagine they were incredibly frustrated. It's like, Jesus has told us to come across the water. Now there's a storm. We're all absolutely knackered. They were trying to do it in their own strength. But you know, if in the storms of life, we need Jesus in a deeper way. But in choppy waters, we can receive the peace. And not just in a, oh yeah, it's Jesus' way, but we can receive it in a way where we can actually take it on as our own. It's amazing language. And I've had um, opportunity to reflect on this. I've been thinking about it again this week. Um, something I've shared um, similarly this week, our, uh, one of our sons had a, a procedure um, on Monday. So I took him into the hospital uh, for a general anaesthetic. It's the fourth one of probably seven that he's going to have. It's obviously quite um, full on. And there's this moment where I kind of, you know, helped put him to sleep and then kind of wander out of the room and down the corridors and that you know the eyes starting to well up and the face starting to wobble behind the mask and just wandering down the corridor just kind of like like Jesus give him your peace Jesus give me your peace having just kind of started to write this Lord I need to receive that peace for myself as he goes in and I go and get a coffee and do you know what actually round the next corner as my face was starting to really go I bumped into Amy Ramsden um, from this community I think she's actually helping with kids today um, so it turns out the peace of Christ looks like Amy Ramsden sometimes which is uh, she's part of our church guys and if you want to know so do do um, do go and chat to her but that was actually a real gift and I think there's something in that just that like quick kind of exhale prayer that sometimes we can be that for each other. Sometimes we can show up in a way that each of us need and to represent Christ, represent the peace of Christ for each other. And in a room full of this size, there's going to be incredibly challenging things going on. And I'm sure we all feel worried at times, afraid like these disciples, the frightened language of these disciples. But this is language for us to hear and for us to receive today that it is I. Take courage because it is I. And remember I've already said with John, this I am language is so rich in theological history that people would have understood. But really it's saying this is what God is like. I am with you. And we can hear that still today. You know, later on, Jesus is with the same disciples, the same people talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says this in verse 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You know, this peace that's like, not, not as the world gives, in other words, not just kind of a little moment, like a spa break or a bit of respite, but a deep peace, a peace that arrives in the storm, a peace that actually moves towards us when we most need it, a peace even from the other side of the grave. I think we've shared this before, but the language in the Greek here for peace, what it really means is a bringing back of two things that have been divided, kind of making whole. So where there's a lack of peace, and we feel it, don't we? A kind of sense of pulling apart, this being set again as one. As things shift and chop in the storms, Jesus, by his presence, is our peace. So firstly then, from this passage, peace. We also think this then, as, as the story goes on, really shows us a way into a new perspective. So they make it to the other side of the water um, with Jesus. And as the story continues, the crowd basically gets up in the morning and follows along. This would have been some of the same crowd that had been there for the feeding of the 5,000. They'd had their food and now they're basically intrigued as to how it got across the lake. Because some of them would have seen like, 
he did not get on that boat and now you're over here someone fill me in because I'm a bit confused here and that's basically what they ask him like what's going on and Jesus in his response as he so often does is kind of reframe it into another question into another opportunity to help people see more fully and really the question is all about their perspective instead of them being concerned about having their fill or even about their perceptions of what the powerful leader that they long for might be what he would achieve what that could look like He says this in verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Do not work for food that spoils. And I think this is linked to the peace as well because he's saying like, don't start putting your ultimate faith in that which doesn't have ultimate value. It's sometimes described as as living life with an eternal perspective, you know, that kind of big picture awareness that ultimately our joy and our hope and our peace as we've been singing about is not just circumstantial, but it's available because of the midst of whatever we're in, Jesus is with us. Jesus, who is the ultimate, moves towards us. And the New Testament, really, letters are littered with this language of living with an eternal perspective, of being citizens of heaven is another way of putting it, setting our hearts on things above. And I found the context of this, um, of where the, how the New Testament was written, really helpful in understanding what some of this stuff actually really looks like. Really, you know, not some kind of escape, just hanging on until one day everything's going to be all right, but participating participating in renewal in the here and now. And it's because the way that the Roman Empire was set up really, kind of from Rome, there was all these different like outposts, different colonies, different cities like Philippi, like Ephesus, like some of these letters you might be aware of. And the way that works was it's often be like ex-soldiers or other people who would have been incredibly proud of their Roman citizenship, incredibly proud of, of, of that they had that. And they would be kind of tasked to go and set up these colonies. And these places would be like Rome, away from Rome it kind of looked like Rome smelled like Rome same language same customs same money all of those things and it would be to kind of create something of Rome in these other places and for these people it was never going to be like oh one day we're going to go back to Rome and it'll be good one day you know their mission was to bring something of Rome to those places and so when Paul and other people are using some of this language like be citizens of heaven not like the Roman citizens, but actually in a similar way, but citizens of heaven. You know, not just one day holding out to go back to Rome, but the task to bring something of heaven into our daily lives. The task of knowing who we are, where we're from, but we can actually start to live that out now, like outposts of heaven in our homes and our workplaces and our relationships and our hobbies. They were outposts of heaven not just being concerned with temporary things, as Jesus puts it, but work that has eternal value and significance, being citizens of heaven, living with this eternal perspective. And I think it's some of that which Jesus is kind of nodding towards here. Like, don't just work for the things that spoil, but have this eternal perspective in our everyday lives, in how we live some of this stuff out. Does that make sense? So peace perspective and then as, as our reading lands I think there's also a sense of a new purpose which is given 
So receiving the peace of Christ as our own, which leads to a fresh perspective and a renewed purpose, I think, in our lives. And purpose is so, so important. It's the foundation. It could, you know, it could be called like the big why behind your life. And I really think that we all do have a, a unique uh, purpose, as it were, a unique contribution to the world that is beyond ourselves. And I really do think that. But also when we strip it back, I think as followers of Jesus, we can really make it simple sometimes and just say, actually, that's about loving God, loving other people. Or really, if you strip that back even one, it's probably really about the glory of God. Tom did an amazing talk in August, if you haven't heard it, do check it out, of that, what is our why? To, to glorify God, to glory in God. And uh, the Westminster Shorts Catechism from a long time ago put it like this, which I think is helpful. Humanity's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's amazing how, you know, I can kind of know that and see about how quickly I can lose sight of purpose to work for food that spoils, to use Jesus' language. And I can feel it even in myself sometimes when you lose sense of purpose, you start to drift, start to, I suppose, sleepwalk in life and you can sleepwalk for quite a while without almost realising it where we are actually then drifting out. And um, I think I might have shared this one before, when I think about sleepwalking, uh, I actually did used to sleepwalk quite a lot as a kid and um, my parents have got some incredibly embarrassing stories about some of those escapades, things that I said and did, but really, um, it's a safe space, isn't it? So I'll share this one. Um, it all came to a bit of a head when I was about 12 years old and we were on holiday as a family in South Devon and the holiday place that we were staying in, um, it was one of those ones where like, we as a family had the upstairs and then a different family had the downstairs, so kind of, we didn't know who they were. And so we were having a great holiday, loving the beaches, all of that. And then one night, I guess, I got up and started to do my thing. And um, different room, different, obviously a bit dis- disorientated. Basically what happened was I found myself stepping up onto the window ledge of the upstairs bedroom. And uh, I don't know, in my dream, I guess I must have presumed that it was a door, and so I actually stepped out, sleptwalked out of the upstairs window. The way I picture it, can't vouch for this for sure, but I feel like it was like, well, you know those cartoons where you, you like suspend in midair, look around, and then go down? That's kind of how I picture it. And then what happened was I woke up landing it on my feet from the upstairs window, presumably like a cat, presumably it looked pretty cool. And I, um, I just remember like waking up like, and I was kind of in the, um, in the flower bed, actually. And um, I was obviously in a bit of a daze. Went round, knocked on the door. This is like 12-year-old me in my pants. And obviously there's a different um, downstairs family, so this, lady, this random lady just opened the door. And I was like, I think I've just fallen out of the window upstairs. Who are you? And... Um, by this time, the commotion, I guess my, my mum had woken up and she'd kind of come running down. It was all a bit of a palaver. And I was actually, I felt all right, but we thought we'd better go to the hospital to check it out. And so in the middle of the night, country lanes, trying to find the local Devon hospital. And we didn't, the doctor basically said, I think you're all right, no major problems. He said, the reason I was fine is because I was asleep, I was completely relaxed. So that's why I didn't kind of break any of my bones. That doesn't really answer how I landed it like a cat in the flower bed to me, but thankfully I was all right. And so, um, yeah, it's strange story, but everything was okay and I came back. But I often think about that story because I don't, that actually, I haven't really slept walk since then. I think I was kind of like, go big, get it all out of my system. <laughs> um, but I very much feel and know that I can still, you know, sleepwalk through life, can still have these moments where I lose that sense of purpose, lose that sense of this is where I'm going intention, start to drift and start to sleepwalk 
But here's the remedy, and I love how Jesus can be so helpful with these things the way he just says it. The remedy is just to re-centre on Jesus. The story, remember where we've come from, where we've been, and then in this moment, to find ourselves in him again, fully awake, fully alive in Jesus. And here's the encouraging part in verse 28, where we finish. And the crowd basically asks him, like, okay, this is fine, don't want food to spoil. Like, what must we do then? Jesus, what must we do? And notice the starting point here. What must we do? Like, give me a list of things I can start working on to sort out and then let me know. Like, give me the list and I can start ticking away. I can make it happen. But actually, that's the wrong starting point. It's the wrong question. It's not, and it never has been about what we can do to reach some of this stuff. And we see that with the disciples in the boat, right? Trying to do it in their own strength, getting frustrated, getting nowhere. I see it in my own life. But actually, the moment of breakthrough came when they received Jesus into the boat, received the peace of Jesus into their lives. So what must we do? Wrong question, wrong starting point. And I know that it's one that we probably can all relate to, is that sometimes how we come to God, how, sometimes how we come at life, what must I do? Jesus says this in verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In some ways it's as simple as that. All of this, okay, what must we do? Believe in the one that he has sent. Remember the reason, as we saw for John writing this gospel in the first place, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The starting point to our purpose and our continued focus is and always will be Jesus. It's to delight and to participate in his faithfulness that came first. We participate in that which was given first. It's not about what we must or can do. We get to join in with what he's up to, bringing those parts of heaven, pointing, witnessing to those parts of heaven in our everyday lives. We get to join in with that, but it starts with believing in the one, that Jesus, the one that God sent, in Jesus, the one that shows us in this passage what God is like, what he does, how that's lived out. So when we let Jesus in, we can receive that peace in the storm of whatever we're facing as our own, which leads to a fresh perspective, an eternal perspective and a renewed purpose and focus for our lives. Amen.